0: One of of the um, causes of the opioid crisis was lack of alternatives. And so we just don't have good pain therapeutics. Even today, we don't. And and so everybody was saying, well, gosh, we don't have any alternatives. We're having a lot of patients suffering, so we need to use more opioids. I was getting uncomfortable with it, and, and then I started looking at cannabis. Like, well, maybe that's a good alternative. As I started doing more and more research, you look at the deaths that we're seeing from opioid use climbing every single year, but then yet there's never been a reported death from cannabis from THC. And so I was looking at, wait a minute, maybe we we're, we're, you know we should step back and look at this.
1: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Mark Wallace. Dr. Wallace is the program director of the UC San Diego Health's Center for Pain Medicine. He's also the chair of the division of pain medicine within UCSD's anesthesiology department. He's widely published, particularly in the area of cannabis as a mode of pain treatment. And he, he recently came on my radar because the NFL is funding a study to examine the impact of cannabis and CBD on pain treatment. And he is the one, one of the ones leading that study. So, Dr. Wallace, thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning. So, for starters, maybe share a little bit about your current role at UCSD. Uh, so, as you said, I'm, I'm a program director.
0: I've been the director of the UC San Diego Division of Pain Medicine for, gosh, since 1996. So my role now is I lead the the program, which consists of clinical care, which is a very active clinical program. We have a, a fellowship training program. We have five pain fellows a year from a variety of backgrounds. We have a very active research program, clinical research program, I'm also the director of the Division of Clinical Research Services in the Altman Clinical and Translational Research Institute, which I, I manage an 18,000 square foot clinic research clinic that supports all of the investigators at, at UC San Diego.
1: What was it that first drew you to pain management specifically? Oh, wow.
0: That was a long time ago. So I started off out of medical school in general surgery internship thinking I wanted to be a surgeon. After about six months, I decided this isn't for me, but I did, did like the operating room environment. So I moved over to anesthesiology. After being an anesthesia residency, I started missing the chronic care and the chronic interaction with patients. And that drew me back to pain management. And I entered the field doing a split between anesthesiology and pain management and started just really getting way too busy to do both. And and my my heart was in 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 pain, so I stopped doing operating room anesthesia in 2010, I think, and have been 100% pain since.
1: Got it. With your vantage point between leading the pain efforts at UCSD as well as the the you know the clinical research that you mentioned, I'm sure you have an interesting sort of perspective on the interesting and exciting advancements happening in pain management right now. As you look out over the landscape and see what's happening, what Developments or research is most exciting to you at this time.
0: Well, I, I mean, of course, I, I, I've done a lot of medical cannabis research, and, and I think that's where most of my my focus on, has been on. But you know, I've been doing clinical research for twenty five plus years. It's been very frustrating because it's very very challenging to get a therapeutic from bench to bedside. I mean, get it into patients, and so I've seen. Way more failures than I've seen success. I think a lot of that is is the is caused by a kind of a lack of a good clinical trials network. So I'm I'm excited that just recently in the past few years that, of course, with the opioid epidemic, NIH is is putting a lot of money into to trying to speed up development, and that led to what's called the EpicNet, which is a, a, a the first. National Clinical Trials Network, supported by NIH, which I'm one of the specialized clinical centers. And then we have the the University of California network that are on my sites. So we're just starting, we will be doing our first clinical trial for a new therapeutic. The focus is on phase two B, which is late phase two development, getting it ready for phase three. So hopefully this is going to speed things up. And then of course, I'm I'm excited about the the, the the cannabis research that is is on the horizon.
1: Talk a little bit about cannabis and the genesis of your interest in cannabis and how it's evolved over time.
0: Well, I was in, in California in 1996 when it was legalized. And at the time, I was in favor of, of medical legalization. But I was on the fence because of, 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 you know, how, how are we going to do this? We, we know nothing about it. What's going to be the source? How do we dose it? What are the indications? I mean, it, it, we knew nothing. <laughs> and then it was in, in 1999 that the state of California allocated money to study medical cannabis. And that was the start of the uh, UC San Diego Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. And they took the state's money and they, they started investing it into research. And I was one of their first investigators that received money. And that was a, a healthy volunteer study trying to get an idea of different doses, what and, and using an, a, a human experimental pain model that I had developed over the previous five to six years. That study was interesting because it showed that there was a an upper limit to what's effective because if you get over that upper limit of, of, of the THC, which is the psychoactive part, you actually start worsening the pain because the opposite effect. So that was the stepping stone to start doing other studies to really d- dive deeper into plasma levels and doing a correlation between THC plasma levels and how that correlates with pain. And based on that research, we've used that information to move forward and knowing what the dosing range is that we should be focusing on. And now I'm, and I've t- taken that research and I've integrated it into our medical practice. I've been doing medical cannabis in patients for a good 15 plus years now.
1: As you think back to those early days of, uh, you know, the blossoming study, no pun intended, were there any either research experiences or a paper that you collaborated on where, where it was, you can kind of see that as a watershed moment where you began to really get excited about the potential of cannabis treatment?
0: Well, I, I think that it was the the, uh, the studies that we did in there were there were many studies from the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, not just mine. I, I was the only one that did the human experimental pain study. But then I followed that up with a diabetic peripheral neuropathy study. There were other investigators that did a study in, in, in HIV peripheral neuropathy, neuropathic low back pain. All of them were positive. All of them showed an effect of, of on pain. Now, the, the problem is that those were small studies and they were. They were, they were placebo-controlled, and they were blinded. I mean, the best we could do. I mean, it's not you can't completely blind when you're dosing somebody with THC. But it was exciting that all of them were positive. And, and they were, we were reproducing the results across studies uh, with these different doses. And it was when I finished my uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy study, we did show a dose-dependent decrease in pain. But at the highest dose, it was still reducing, but I could start to see it was starting to turn the corner, but we ran out of money to look at the plasma levels that we had drawn. We had stored them. And then I subsequently got some other funding. It was about, gosh, it was probably three or four years later that we were able to pull those, those blood levels. And, and analyze them and really do a nice correlation looking at the actual plasma level of the THC. And we showed this inverted U. So as the plasma levels go up, the pain goes down and then you reach a point where it starts to go in the opposite direction
1: and pain increases. So you had plasma in storage for years that you were waiting for the money to unlock to be able to interpret. Yeah, I mean, we
0: were we were looking for other sources of money. So we, we ran out of money. I mean, it's not, it's that's... You know there, there, the the uh, CMCR and the state funding was limited. It wasn't like it was a boatload of cash. So we, we we they had to to use it wisely. And I we had enough money to draw the blood, and we had enough money to store it. But it's it's expensive to to do assays. on blood.
1: In you know, as time has passed, in recent years especially the the opioid crisis, at least prior to like COVID happening, and that has become the public health enemy number one. But What's happening with opioids in our country has been very much in the media and the, the subject of policy task forces and things, some of which you have participated in. So tell me a little bit about, from your perspective, what you've done on the policy front and your observation about how the opioid crisis in America has impacted cannabis research and, and development. Well, I've,
0: I have uh, seen the pendulum go from one extreme to the other with, uh, with respect to opioids. When I first got into to pain management, the pendulum was swinging way, way far to the other side with much more liberal use of opioids. We, all the risk of addiction was low. We need to use more of it. And I was even involved in that early, early in my career, but it wasn't, I didn't get too far into my career until I started questioning how we were using opioids and, and questioning that, Oh, maybe we've, we're, we're need to rethink this and step back. Cause I was, not comfortable with the level of opioids. I was not against using opioids, but one of of the um, causes of the opioid crisis was lack of alternatives. And so we just don't have good pain therapeutics. Even today we don't. And, And so everybody was saying, well, gosh, we don't have any alternatives. We're having a lot of patients suffering, so we need to use more opioids. I was getting uncomfortable with it, and, and then I started looking at cannabis, like, well, maybe that's a good alternative. As I started doing more and more research, you look at the deaths that we're seeing from opioid use climbing every single year, but then yet there's never been a reported death from cannabis, from THC. And so I was looking at, wait a minute, maybe we we're, we're, you know, we should step back and look at this as an, uh, but when in 1996, even in 2000, we didn't know how to use it. And so fast forward to today, I, 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 we know so much more about it. We know so much more how to dose it you, and how to use all the different modes of delivery, including inhalation, which has, has a place in, 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 in practice. So it's, we still have a ways to go though because most of our research is, is, is on chronic pain and, on, and mainly on neuropathic pain. We have no research looking at the effects of CBD, we don't even know if CBD has any any therapeutic effect. There's a big hype around CBD. My feeling is that the doses of CBD that would be required for a therapeutic effect are cost prohibitive right now. So we need more research with CBD and we need more research with medical cannabis in acute injury and post-operative
1: pain. With CBD and the the potential uses are you thinking in terms of pain management specifically, or other? You know, I've heard it like, oh, it helps you sleep, it helps you relax. I, I don't really know much about the well, other so things if that you, people are claiming. If, like it, if
0: you compare THC to CBD and you look at the dosing range, okay, the, both CBD and THC have what we call biphasic effects. So the low doses are the opposite of the high doses. So with the, the dosing range for THC, if you go from one milligram to 20 milligrams as a single dose, so, one to two milligrams is reduces pain. It causes relaxation. You get up to four to five milligrams, and you get improved sleep. Then you get into ten milligrams, and you get paranoia. You get twenty milligrams, and you get psychosis. So you can see the big differences. CBD that dosing range goes from ten to eight hundred milligrams. So 10 milligrams, low doses of CBD actually are stimulating and they can actually keep you awake. But then you start going into a couple of hundred milligrams and they can be sedating. And then 400 milligrams can have like anti-seizure activity. And then, you know, you go up into the 800 milligrams and you can reduce anxiety. So, so you go from stimulating to calming effect as you go up. So it's, but... There is a, a an FDA approved drug called Epidiolex, it, and it's it's FDA approved for to treat intractable seizures in children. But the doses they they give those children range from like four to eight hundred milligrams up to three or four times a day. That's a twenty thousand dollar a year cost. So so the doses that's, that 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 the people are using. The CBD doses like from the dispensaries are more around, you know, maybe the 20 to 30 milligram dosing range, which is probably not therapeutic. And also, I have a lot of patients say, Oh, I take CBD and it relieves my pain. It's pure C B D and it relieves my pain and it helps me sleep. It's probably contaminated with some THC because they don't know, or you know, they think it's THC free, but we know you don't need much. THC to get benefits from it, including sleep. So it's probably still this, the THC they're getting the effects from,
1: or maybe the placebo effect. Who knows? It could be the placebo. <laughs> I'm curious. You know, you you started this cannabis research in the mid to late '90s as it was becoming legalized in California. At the same time, opioid prescribing was ramping up, and and you described this sort of evolution of your thinking. I'm curious if you have any experiences, you know, maybe the research and the prevailing thinking is that opioids are the best thing since sliced bread and we need to be aggressively treating pain as the, the fifth vital sign and all that. And for you, there was a shift at some point. Do you have any experiences or any things you can point to to say like, this was something that didn't make sense in my brain where you, you saw an, a lack of things matching up between prevailing sentiment and what you were observing clinically?
0: well the, the the main thing that got me questioning the opioids is I, I I was concerned at how that drug controlled the patient's life and and I saw patients going from controlling their life to looking at the clock when am I going to take my next dose of opioid and then toward the end of the month when their opioid was running down their anxiety level goes up because they and, and, and it's because they 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 have experienced withdrawal when they run out. I also got, started getting concerned that the opioids, I was going through making them feel good of reducing pain to withdrawing, to, to feeling good to withdrawing. And I just, it, 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 and then I, and I also look back and say, well, this drug was never intended for chronic use. It was really there for acute injury. And I saw a lot of patients that, And In fact, even today, when I talk to patients about opioid use, if they're on a lot of opioids and I'm seeing them for the first time, I I do a little detective work, go way, way back, say, when was the first time you were exposed to the opioids? What were the circumstances? Most of them say it was after an acute injury or surgery. And then I say, and you never went off of them. And they say, well, no, I can't go off of them. And... And, so, and that's almost always the story. They 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 were they were prescribed and then they they just stayed on them and they never went. and then the and then they developed tolerance and then I saw how they were going up and up and up and up on the dose, and all these things were just setting off red flags and say well, something's wrong here. Now I don't want to that that didn't apply to everybody. There are some patients of mine and I still write have patients that. I give them their opioid, and, but they're on reasonable doses. And some of them, my legacy patients may be on higher, higher doses. But as a general rule, I try to avoid them. And I think we, and we're doing a better job of, we're trying to do a better job of, of teaching surgeons and primary care doctors to say, you, there is a time you need these drugs, these opioids, but you need to have that conversation with the patient before their surgery that this purpose of this opioid is to keep you out of, keep your pain reduced for the recovery period. But after you heal, you will go off of them. And this is why. These are the risks. And if you had that discussion with them before, they're more likely to go off of it.
1: So you you mentioned acute injury being the initiation into the opioid realm for many patients. Obviously, I I like to now sort of pivot and talk about the NFL stuff. So I think about acute injury, and I think about the things that football players subject themselves to day to day, week to week, and that is, uh, you know, a rich breeding ground for all kinds of pain. And historically, opioids have. There's just crazy stories, you know, especially a decade or two ago before we knew what we know now about opioids and the way that pro athletes who experience a lot of pain had just ready access to whatever they needed to continue to perform at the level that they wanted to, which has created a a lot of issues, obviously. So talk a little bit about the study that you're doing with the NFL and how that came about.
0: The NFL back last year around summer, they announced funding and they were, they, they, they were asking for calls for proposals to look at medical cannabis in sports injury. And so we applied for it. There have been, there's, there's, a high percentage of, of, of the elite athletes are exposed to opioids over their career, and many of them remain on opioids in retirement. So, I, the, And the NFL, they've seen this, and again, with the opioid crisis, they're looking for alternatives. It's also well known that, that elite athletes, it's, there's anecdotal reports that elite athletes are using cannabis as a recovery me- method. And they're reporting benefits from it, but that's anecdotal. There have been no science behind that, there's no research behind it. And so that the proposal, the call caught our eye. And we said, hey, we're we're there's no better place than the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. We're set up to do these studies. So the, the CMCR has the infrastructure, they have the staff, they have everything. They have, they can, we can do assays. So we um, there were, I think, 106 proposals that were submitted. And they selected 10 as finalists we were selected out of uh, one of the 10 and then they awarded two now the we the study that we've proposed to do we would love to do it in the nfl athletes but it's just not feasible at this time and so given that the the uc san diego has uh, close ties to the professional rugby community we uh, decided to to use rugby as a model because rugby they they come really close, if not more, uh, to what NFL players experience and in their injuries. We are we proposed a it's going to be a small study. I mean, it's we only can do so much with the money they they have allocated, and it's going to be in around fifty to sixty rugby players. It, it will be a, a, a double blinded randomized crossover design where they will be exposed to four arms. One is placebo. One is pure THC, 4%. One is CBD, 12%. And then the other arm is a combination of the two. So they'll be given the supply. They will go through competition. If they, after competition, if they experience an injury with a certain level of pain, then they, they use the first arm. They open up the bottle and, and it will be inhaled. It will be vaporized. They'll do their first dose the evening of competition. And then they'll, they'll dose up to forty-eight hours, but no more. And they they want we want them to dose at least morning and evening. They can do up to four doses a day, but after the forty-eight hours, they stop using. And and that's because in that forty-eight hours after their competition, it's kind of it's the really downtime for them. They they go through a lot of pretty much a, a lot of rigorous. You've seen rugby game, games, and they get injured. So that's the recovery. The first day is recovery, and then the second day is in there with our trainer, and then, and so we're using that time to dose the cannabis. We don't want them to continue to dose it throughout the week, and we're, they're going to get a cell phone app, so we will be able to notify them. Take your dose, and after the dose, they're going to be giving us outcome measures, and we're going to take it one step further because there one of the theories behind medical cannabis with THC. Is that anti-inflammatory effect, and that may be the one of the reasons these elite athletes uh, are reporting, "Hey, it helps me recover." So we know that inflammation is not a good thing; it, it, it will slow down recovery. So the what we're gonna we're gonna be drawing a blood sample before, and then we're gonna have coordinators in at the sites. That will uh, draw blood uh, at 48 hours, so we'll get two time points and look at, at at inflammatory markers in their blood to see if the cannabis reduces the inflammatory markers.
1: And then you'll be as, as far as the well, a couple questions. The, you mentioned an app. Is that an app that you built, or is that an off the shelf thing that you're using, or do you are you collaborating with another company? To it's a, that?
0: It's, it, it's something that is is available. It's an ecological monetary assessment called EMA. It's a commonly used program.
1: And when you're tracking outcomes, what types of data are you collecting and what are you looking for?
0: So we have four primary outcomes, uh, which is, of course, pain reduction. And we're going to be looking at uh, physical functioning. We're going to ask them about their overall impression, global impression, at the end of the 48 hours. We're also going to be looking at the effects on sleep, their mood, their mood. Of course, the biological markers is, is another outcome. I'm drawing a blank, we have probably seven or eight outcomes.
1: So it's essentially like a questionnaire in the app that the players after 48 hours will fill out to say, here's how I feel about all these different things. Here's the sleep experience. Here's the physical function and all that. Yeah, they are questionnaires that they, they just
0: quickly complete on the app. It doesn't take very long. These are validated questionnaires that can be done. And, and, and another thing is you have got to understand this, is, these, these elite athletes and the rugby players, their their priority is to their competition and their performance. We would love to do a trial that's really tightly controlled and they have to, you know, they can't use any other medications. It's not feasible. You, you have to do it in a way as not to interfere with their, their competition. So I mean, we've, we've received a lot of enthusiasm from the rugby community to participate in this. It's there, there are some, some, you know, it's challenging to do these studies. If they, we can't keep them from using other medications too, or maybe they have other treatments. We're just asking them, you know, use the cannabis first, but if you're not getting the relief you need, go back to what you normally do. We just want to know. So the app, they'll be able to plug in there. Hey, I just took some ibuprofen. Or maybe they use cannabis. Who knows? Some of them may already use cannabis, but we just say, well, just use ours first. But if it's not working, you can always go back to your your, your baseline or whatever treatment you you use.
1: As you continue to build a body of evidence for this cannabis use, especially in these acute sort of situations, and especially with athletes, how do you think that this is going to evolve, you know, treatment of these types of uh, challenges that athletes are facing. And how long do you think it'll take? That's another thing. It's, you know, it takes a long time for, <laughs> as you mentioned, getting bench to bedside for that information to filter out. How do you anticipate that unfolding?
0: Well, our hypothesis is that the THC alone and the THC-CBD combination will, will be better than the CBD alone in the placebo. We don't expect to see much benefit from the CBD alone. Now, now clinically, I almost never use CBD alone, and I almost never use THC alone. We usually use a combination. Now, the CBD that we the dose of CBD that they're using in combination with THC, probably the CBD alone is not doing much. But what we've seen is the CBD seems to reduce the psychoactivity of the THC. And so, that's why we, we put a little bit of it in there. So, that's our hypothesis. Now, if our hypothesis shows to be true, and then they say, hey, the THC arm, I recovered faster, my pain was less, my physical function was better, we're hoping that that's going to open the door for a larger study. Then we would like to do hundreds, and we're hoping that it would open the door to uh, go into the NFL and, and study them. Now, What if it's just such a definitive study that it was so successful that the NFL looks at and say, wow, this is great. We're going to lift the restrictions on the on the on the cannabis right now. The NFL, it is a banned substance in the NFL, but they don't test for it. So they they do test for it early in in their career. But as long as the NFL players stay out of trouble, they're not testing for it and and they're not suspending them anymore for it. I, I mean, they're not like it's a banned substance, but they're not kicking them out if they're positive. And they do have a an upper limit blood levels that they're looking for that they, if they go over that, then they can get in trouble. But that's a good thing because it, I think they do need to put that upper limit on it because if the research we've done is it can actually worsen their performance if they get too much of it.
1: That makes a lot of sense. As you've you think back about the work that you've done and lots of exciting, you know, new studies. Were there any times where, you know, you mentioned like therapies that you've researched that have, have not worked or come to fruition. Have there been any low points for you on the journey of study and advancing science where you, you found it sort of uniquely frustrating in, in this area in particular?
0: Well, most of it, the frustration, it's a, I, I do all phases of studies. I mean, phase one through phase four. And most of the studies I've done have been around the phase two. And to see, put so much effort and you look at, at the, the therapeutic and look at the preclinical data and you get excited about it. And it's like, wow, this looks really good in the preclinical studies. Yeah. And it looks safe and tolerable in the phase one studies. And you're like, this is, is going to be great. And then you do the phase two and there's no effect difference of, over placebo. And then, and then you wonder that, and I think my my frustration with that is I think that the FDA has put too much restrictions on on developing these drugs and getting them through. Sometimes I look at the the results and I say, "Well, is it a failed drug or a failed study?" And I, I still believe that that drug would have therapeutic benefit for my patients. But uh, you know, there's there's a difference between efficacy of a drug and effectiveness. You know, efficacy. Is in early phase studies, and a drug can be uh, effective. I mean, efficacious in in a, in a clinical trial, but then you get it into humans in a large population, it may not be as effective. But the 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 reverse also holds that it can be. You can have a drug. Wow, it really didn't show efficacy in a really tightly controlled small study, but I look at it and says, "Gosh, I think that would be effective in my my popul- my patients," but. The FDA rules are it has to be efficacious or they're not going to let it go through. And so we lose a lot of drugs because of that.
1: Cool. Well, Dr. Wallace, thank you very much for sharing your perspective today. We'll wrap it up there. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today on APM Success. Okay. Thank you. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to APMSuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.